open the book by taking uh, readers with me on a journey that I made to Gainesville, Florida, where I was visiting a, an elderly scientist named Arnold Grobman. In the 1950s, Grobman was the director of something called the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, or BSCS. This was a uh, series of biology textbooks that were developed after Sputnik uh, that were based on uh, the nature of inquiry, sort of inquiry-based learning. And the story that Grobman tells is that he, he went to Hong Kong uh, because he wanted to understand more about how science was being taught in Asian classrooms. And he, there he witnessed these students uh, dissecting earthworms. But because these students were preparing for British exams, they were labeling the earthworms uh, with the labels in their British textbooks. Even though these were locally specific earthworms, their anatomy didn't quite match the version in the textbooks. And uh, Grobman was greatly disturbed by this, and he saw this as a missed opportunity. With me is Audra Wolf, a Philadelphia-based writer, editor, and historian. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and the podcast American History Tellers. She is with me to talk about her new book, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. For him, this meant that the students would be vulnerable to authoritarianism uh, because they were following the instructions in a textbook instead of the information uh, in front of their own eyes. And so he used this story, uh, the story that he told me, that he told many other people many times over the course of his life. He used this study basically to say that inquiry-based learning would um, inoculate students against the dangers of authoritarianism, against the dangers of totalitarianism, and against communism, which of course, was a deep concern for Hong Kong uh, next to China. So also in the introduction, you mentioned that the project this book was initially based on started off as an investigation into the life of uh, geneticist H. Bentley Glass. So why were you initially interested in Glass? And how is how did that project kind of morph into this book? Yeah, so, you know, this is my second book. And my first book was a more general history of uh, uh, the role of science and state power in the Cold War. And so in that book, I was I was reading all of this information about uh, basically what historians of science think happened during the Cold War. And the funny thing about Glass was that he didn't match any of the stories that we historians tell about this time period. Um, the uh, kind of uh, given knowledge is that scientists withdrew from American political life because if they confronted power in any way, they would lose their jobs, they would uh, uh, get charges of McCarthyism, they would be uh, you know hounded by the FBI, they would basically wouldn't be able to work, and so they kept their heads down. And what was strange about Bentley Glass was he was the opposite of these Things. He was head of the Maryland ACLU for 10 years. He was kind of lightly involved with civil rights. He very publicly refused to take a loyalty oath. He talked about fallout. He was actually one of the most prominent um, spokesmen's warning of the, danger, the genetic dangers of fallout in the 1950s. And yet his career arrived. Um, he had a very high clearance and he was advising the Atomic Energy Commission, even as he was going around the country warning about fallout. He um, became the president of any number of American scientific organizations. He was an extremely public figure. He advised the Kennedy administration. Um, so I couldn't understand what was going on with this guy. Uh, was the story wrong that we were telling about science and politics? Um, was it something about glass? He had a reputation as a religious man. Did that somehow uh, protect him from these charges? 
Um, you know, or was it something else? Did we just basically have something that we couldn't see on the printed page? Um, and over time, as I was researching glass, I began to realize that there was, in fact, something else and that glass had a much, uh, a much less oppositional relationship to the government than I had imagined. Uh, his brother had been fairly deeply involved in intelligence work in World War II. And even as, um, as early as the late 1940s and early 1950s, glass was actually doing consulting work for the State Department in the 1960s, he was uh, making recommendations for uh, who the CIA might hire as a translator to do some uh, uh, work for the American Institute of Biological Sciences. This guy did not have an oppositional relationship to the government. Um, and basically, the State Department uh, found his uh, comments, uh, uh, particularly about scientific freedom, incredibly useful. He was this international figure who could defend scientific freedom. And it turns out he wasn't alone. There were a lot of people who fell in that category, people who on paper looked like they were standing up to McCarthyism and who historians of science had portrayed as being victims of McCarthyism. Often these same people had uh, fairly vibrant careers as sort of informal diplomats for science, uh, really projecting American values abroad. This idea of in that era, science and scientists being both fiercely kind of independent, but also useful to the US government in particular, this kind of permeates uh, the book and was really kind of the broader story that you're trying to tell. I mean, we tend to think about the Cold War as only being about an atomic war that never happened, the sort of cold part, as well as a, a series of proxy real wars that the USSR and the US fought, for example, Vietnam. But this, the Cold War was at its heart also a war of ideology, which has other less kind of fresh, flashy fronts. There was a lot of psychological war and a lot of propaganda involved in the Cold War. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're waging an ideological war, um, there's this idea that victory by force would be hollow. Um, the United States really, it, its foreign policy leaders really saw itself as waging a war on behalf of freedom. And if you want the rest of the world to come on your side, you can't choice, you can't force people to choose freedom. That's sort of a meaningless choice. Um, so there was this idea that um, people around the world needed to choose the side of the United States willingly. Um, and so particularly in the late 1940s, early 1950s, the United States developed extraordinarily elaborate plans for um, various kinds of cultural diplomacy. Um, some of these were explicitly propaganda. Uh, some of these fall into the category of psychological warfare. Um, and others are kind of more innocuous activities, like promoting um, abstract art as an, as an alternative to uh, Soviet realism. Um, and science was sort of in this category. The United States really wanted to promote the idea that science in the West was free, that it was uh, much more free than under communism, that it was uh, uniquely free from government control in particular, um, that it was uh, uniquely dedicated to uh, scientific research for research sake, sort of basic research, as opposed to focus on technological ends. And that science in the West, that science knew no borders, that science was international, uh, in contrast to Soviet science, which was supposedly um, intensely nationalist. So the United States was really uh, promoting these ideas that there were that there was basically an American opposite to everything that the Soviet Union was offering, and science was no different from that. I want to talk uh, a little bit about the definition of the word freedom, because this is so integral to this era, and in particular, the US ideology. We, we kind of 
I think, potentially bring our own definitions of what this word means, both uh, to ourselves and also in our broader sort of modern idea of what that word means. But what did it mean at that time when they talk about the idea of promoting freedom or uh, trying to get people to pick freedom? What did it kind of mean in the context of the Cold War? Well, what I hear in your question is um, kind of a recognition that um, this term is is pretty murky and amorphous in the book, and that's uh, by intent, because the actors weren't quite sure what it meant to them either. They knew that freedom was the opposite of communism, uh, but it took them a long time to actively try and articulate what is this ideology of freedom? What is the opposite of communism? Um, and what it eventually came down to, a lot of this had to do with the idea of free choice, free will, freedom from government interference. Um, these were almost always freedom froms as opposed to freedoms to. Um, a really interesting moment in the story is in the mid-1950s when um, the folks at the USIA, U.S. Inter Information Agency, which was the uh, official organization uh, that kind of produced propaganda, true propaganda, but, but propaganda uh, to spread to the rest of the world, um, officials at the USIA in particular said, we need to articulate what is the U.S. ideology. And so they actually produced documents that go to the National Security Council um, with titles like U.S. Ideological Program. And they, they put together a reading list about um, books about freedom. Um, and a lot of these books are kind of classics of um, classics of liberal democracy, um, kind of de Tocqueville style works or uh, kind of Thomas Paine style works. These are these are works that are really exploring the idea that um, uh, free individuals can associate in republics and, and govern in that way. So it's this idea of freedom from it's not so much about freedom to. Um, and what's interesting about this time period is that even in 1955, um, some voices at the State Department were pointing out that, of course, um, not everyone had access to the same kinds of freedom in the United States. Um, and so even in these, even at this period, there were voices at the State Department saying it's really difficult for us to be promoting this vision of freedom while the United States is enforcing Jim Crow laws in the U.S. South. This is not a compelling story to tell to the rest of the world, particularly the people in the global South who can see how racism works in American society. So um, this wasn't an untroubled idea about what freedom was, but the, the core of it is really the idea that you could have freedom from government control. And when scientists in particular are talking about it, that's what they mean, that the government is not going to interfere in their work. It's an ironic term because, of course, the government was funding um, American science at unprecedented levels during the Cold War. But, the, you know, ideologies are never consistent. Um, and this is how this particular ideology was playing out in the 1950s. I do also want to talk about the word propaganda, because we hear the word propaganda and think of it as kind of like a dirty word. It's something somebody else does. It's kind of intrinsically nefarious. We don't, I think, like to think of Western democracies, places like the US, the UK, Canada as being um, having done propaganda or having put propaganda out there. Yeah, propaganda is a challenging term. Um, but used in its sort of technical sense, um, propaganda has no truth about, um, it, it's not a value-laden term in that you can have propaganda that's true or you can have propaganda that's false. Um, propaganda in some ways is um, more like government-backed advertising. Um, it's information that is shared with a specific purpose to uh, persuade other people that you are right. Um, and so 
Psychological warfare experts and people who uh, dabble in propaganda for a living, they distinguish between white propaganda, gray propaganda, and black propaganda. And uh, the United States, I mean, and its opponents, to, to be clear, the Soviet Union was, uh, they, they were experts at propaganda. The United States learned many of the ways that it conducted propaganda from, from the Soviets. Um, but White propaganda is generally true and its sources are acknowledged. So, for instance, the uh, USIA, Voice of America, uh, the State Department, it issued white propaganda. So fact-based information, um, certainly information that would um, highlight what the United States was doing right and maybe not discuss what the United States wasn't doing as well. Um, and then there's gray propaganda, which is generally going to be true. Uh, again, it may have some errors of omission, uh, but the actual uh, information being presented is general true, generally true. But its origins might be obscured. Um, you could generally find out if you tried. But so, for instance, if you were the mayor of Munich and you wanted to hold um, some sort of uh, event that was sponsored by the United States government, but you wanted to make sure that the, that the mayor got credit for it, you might not advertise that the event was being sponsored by the U.S. government. And then black propaganda, that's what we think of as really the kind of cloak and dagger stuff, the lies stuff. Uh, black propaganda might not be true. Um, and you might be actively uh, confusing people about its source. Um, so a lot of misdirection suggesting that information is, is coming from other directions. Uh, when we think back to uh, what happened in the 2016 election in the United States, um, when we think about, uh, you know, so-called Russian trolls or Twitter campaigns uh, that are designed to, to spread misinformation, that's black propaganda. Kind of fake news is black propaganda. Um, but simply, you know, putting out information that uh, puts your government in a in a positive light, uh, that's considered white propaganda. So how does science start to fit into the broader story of psychological war and uh, ideological propaganda during the Cold War? Well, it fits into it in a couple of different ways. And, and the most important uh, kind of the most fundamental reason um, requires thinking about anthropology for a minute. So when we think about cultural diplomacy, um, when historians talk about it, it's tempting to think that cultural diplomacy means culture with a capital C, sort of campaigns involving arts and letters. But for mid-century thinkers, uh, particularly the thinkers in foreign policy, who had uh, you know spent a lot of time, uh, who had really matured as leaders during World War II, for them, they were using culture in an anthropological logical sense and sort of a, a Margaret Mead mid-century sense that uh, cultures developed in certain ways and that if you could um, encourage cultures to develop in certain ways uh, that they would uh, uh, change in certain ways and that they might be more likely to end up as liberal democracies than to become uh, than to become societies that endorse communism. So for them culture was scientific and culture was identifiable and you could push it. Um, and because science and technology were really central to these ideas about how culture developed, um, particularly ideas about science and technology and its relationship to power, science and technology was one of the things that foreign policy leaders wanted to see changing in very specific ways in countries who they hoped to, um, in, in countries that they hoped would become liberal democracies. Um, science was also important because these ideas about culture that they were working with assumed that technocratic leaders um, and elites would be the ones who would be driving the direction of society. And the idea was that technocratic elites particularly wanted to have science-based development 
So um, the idea was that you could appeal to these kind of elites and that you could convince them that the way that uh, the United States was doing science, the way that the West was doing science was going to have their, uh, would lead to faster development, uh, better economic development, um, that that your country would achieve modernity more quickly um, if you were using American concepts of science and technology as opposed to Soviet concepts of science and technology. What's really interesting about this is that, I mean, the Soviets were in that game too. And of course, the Soviet Union had um, dramatic and rapid technological development during the 20th century. Um, so for many leaders in the global south, leaders of newly independent countries, this was genuinely a live question. How do you bring your country into economic independence? Do you follow the path of communism or socialism and have planned development? Or do you... Um, you know, do you follow the path of free enterprise? Do you devote, you know, X percent of your GDP to scientific research? And the United States was really uh, promoting these kinds of ideas that you needed to do it like the United States did it to the point that they were, you know, suggesting specific numbers of how much GDP should be devoted to ba to basic research. Um, it's, it's a fascinating story to think about how um, you can use science in, in these ways um, to, um, you know, to, to cultivate alliances. I guess it's uh, the strategy of targeting the people in power, the elites, in hopes of pulling the country as that's, I guess, the decision making power in any country. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, these ideas also have very practical consequences. One of the ideas that I mentioned earlier was um, this idea that science has no borders, scientific internationalism. So when you asked earlier about how science became part of this, I was talking about culture. But of course, there's also very practical, immediate concerns, and that would be scientific intelligence. And so these same folks involved in, in foreign policy realized that one of the best ways to collect scientific intelligence would be to encourage the free exchange of information on the international stage. So at the same time that the United States was promoting this idea that the West was uh, uniquely um, uh, open to the idea of international scientific collaboration, the United States was establishing its first permanent peacetime intelligence agency, the CIA. So this is such a both and situation where many scientists genuinely wanted to have international collaborations with their foreign colleagues. Um, and the people who were supporting them actively wanted to be able to glean scientific intelligence from those exchanges. Some scientists were aware of that dynamic and some of them weren't. Um, so this was a mutually beneficial relationship, particularly in the early 1950s. This must have been such a conflict within government, the idea of having free exchange of scientific ideas, but also being aware that that free exchange, which might bring you intelligence on what other communities are doing or what other countries are doing could potentially also work the other way and that other countries will get intelligence on what you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing in this period, because when the CIA was first created in 1947, the United States was so convinced that it had technological superiority over other countries, including the Soviet Union, that it wasn't as worried about the secrets that it might be giving away. The United States really thought that it was going to have an atomic monopoly for possibly as much as 20 years, um, in part because uh, General Groves from the Manhattan Project had bought up a lot of uranium stores, uh, but also because the United States simply convinced itself that the backward Soviets couldn't possibly solve the problem of the atomic bomb. 
so when the Soviets actually tested their atomic bomb in the fall of 1949, uh, that changed that dynamic pretty dramatically. And the United States realized that it needed to um, have much better access to um, other people's scientific intelligence. And it also realized how much information had been leaking out from the United States. Um, and so what happened after the Soviets tested their weapon in the fall of 1949 was really... Uh, an incredible amount of suspicion that fell onto American scientists. Um, and physicists in particular had a terrible time um, getting clearances. For many years, the the uh, the CIA had a whole series of uh, science advisors, none of whom lasted more than about 15 months in uh, before like 1953. And if you read the documents, the declassified documents about what happened there, there some of them actively suggest that even the CIA's science advisor had trouble getting the clearances that he needed. He had trouble getting information about um, particularly atomic espionage, that there was just so much concern um, that people would be stealing, um, could be stealing information that they couldn't do it. Can I tell you a story about Wallace Brody and why he left the, why he left the CIA? Absolutely. Okay. So this is, this is a fabulous example. Um, it, it's almost farcical. So Wallace Brody was the CIA's first science advisor. He started when the CIA opened in 1947. His cover appointment was at the National Bureau of Standards. Um, he was one of three associate directors at the National Bureau of Standards. Now, the head of the Bureau of Standards was a man named Edward Condon, who um, got into some trouble with the Senate and got into trouble with the FBI uh, because he was a big uh, proponent of the international control of atomic energy. And so a lot of suspicion was falling on Ed Condon. In 1948, Ed Condon needed to be out of the country. So he couldn't actually run the National Bureau of Standards. And as it happened, the other two associate directors were also going to be unavailable for about two weeks. So Wallace Brody, nominally one of the associate directors of the National Bureau of Standards, which had more than 3,000 technical employees, um, asked his boss at the CIA, hey, can I go do my cover job for a couple weeks because I need somebody to run this? And the CIA said, no, because it's, it would be embarrassing because the, because the Bureau of Standards has such uh, an air of suspicion about it because of Ed Condon that it would be damaging to us if you were actually connected to the Bureau of Standards. So Brody resigned the CIA and he left that job to take up a, the position at the Bureau of Standards that he had held on paper for a long time. I, I love this story because um, it's such an example of, on the one hand, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, but also how counterproductive these security fears were to even being able to run your cover operations. Um, it's, it's kind of a ludicrous story, but I love it. It really, really highlights this dynamic in the late 1940s. Absolutely. It's just this. How did they get anything done? <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent question. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, well, I mean, one, one wonders how much they did get done. Obviously, <laughs> the Soviet bomb was a great surprise in 1949. So one wonders, indeed, how much they managed to get done. Yes, that must have been quite a wake up call, I imagine, when that all went down. <laughs> So given that the US government is trying to promote the idea of what US science is, and that it is the better choice, uh, that doing it in the quote unquote US way is the best way to go, that implies that the Soviet Union is doing it differently. So let's talk a little bit about Soviet science at this time, both um, the perception of Soviet science and the kind of reality on the ground. Because as with all ideological wars, uh, sometimes what you think of the other side, 
side is not necessarily the truth of what's happening on the other side. And we, the vast majority of our listeners would be centered on the US centric side. So let's talk about Soviet science at this time. Sure. Um, you know, part of how the Americans began talking about freedom and scientific freedom, part of that was an artifact of timing because of something that happened in the Soviet Union in 1948. So there was a Soviet uh, agronomist, a, a Ukrainian agronomist by the name of Trofim Lysenko, who had uh, certain unorthodox ideas about uh, heredity. Um, he was particularly fond of this, of what he called the vernalization of wheat. The idea that if you exposed, uh, wheat seeds to cold, to cold conditions, um, that they would produce better under Soviet conditions. It's sort of like Lamarckian inheritance of acquired characteristics, um, except he didn't necessarily have a lot of, um, it wasn't articulated in that way. Um, some contemporary Russian researchers uh, say that they're that that in the modern idea of epigenetics that we can see some of what Lysenko was arguing for, um, and there's some truth to that. Except that Lysenko wasn't actually doing a lot of experiments, and most of what he was doing um, wasn't quite true. Um, so you know, it's it's fairly safe to say that Lysenko was a charlatan, um, and he was very good at accruing power. So at some point in the 1930s, Lysenko really did start to uh, gather more power, particularly with the Communist Party. And geneticists who didn't agree with him uh, were losing their jobs. Some of them were imprisoned and shot. Now, there's some historiographical debate about whether they were shot because they specifically disagreed with Lysenko or whether this was just part of the broader pattern of Stalin's purges. Um, I think it's more the latter, that it wasn't necessarily their specific views on genetics, because there were many other scientists from other fields who were also rounded up and shot in, in 1937. Um, but whatever, whatever happened in 1937, it is clear that Lysenko continued to amass power. And in 1948, the Communist Party officially endorsed his views as the views on, as the official views on genetics in the Soviet Union. Um, so traditional ideas of Western genetics, like Mendelian inheritance, uh, were now considered bourgeois, and they were considered um, kind of not materialist. Uh, Lysenko particularly liked to talk about um, Western geneticist obsessions with the genes. He wasn't convinced that genes existed. Um, and he would point to the ways that these Mendelian geneticists focused on fruit flies, sort of useless research, as opposed to the work that he was doing on wheat that was going to feed the Soviet peasant, I mean, that was going to feed the Soviet masses, it was going to feed the proletariat. So he had really developed this, um, this kind of ideology of a, of a uh, Western, uh, of a, of a, Soviet kind of genetics and a Western genetics. So he took power in 1948. Now, simultaneously, Soviet genetics had become increasingly isolated from the West. And one of um, the best connections had been a man named H.J. Muller, who had spent a lot of the 1930s living in the Soviet Union, a former a former communist. He considered himself a socialist, albeit an anti-Stalinist associate af uh, uh, socialist after he left the Soviet Union. Muller um, had to flee, in, in part because of Stalin's purges in 1937. And so Muller became this sort of rabid red baiter, although he was still socialist. Um, and he saw what was happening with Lysenko's rise to power, and he assumed the worst. He assumed that if, Lys that if Lysenko was in charge, that all geneticists in the Soviet Union were going to be rounded up 
and shot. That didn't actually happen. But um, it is true that the research institutions were dismantled. Uh, researchers who did Western genetics or kind of Mendelian genetics, they mainly went underground and they gave their institutes uh, new names like radiobiology. Um, and so they were still able to do that work, but they had to do it kind of quietly and they, they couldn't, you know, they had trouble getting uh, much funding. But in the United States, Mueller was a master propagandist. And so Mueller took what had happened with Lysenkoism and basically said, this is the inevitable path of science under communism, um, that planning will inevitably result uh, to uh, to dogmas and to ideologically driven science where everybody has to subscribe to a party line. This idea that there's a party line in science um, really became one of the central talking points in Western propaganda about how science worked under communism. Um, and of course, Mueller took that to its ultimate conclusion, looking at what had happened in the 30s to say, and more, scientists who uh, scientists under communism will be shot. This is the inevitable result of what happens when you have communism. Um, so, you know, this wasn't necessarily what was happening in the late 1940s, but um, Mueller had good reason to think that based on what had happened under Stalin in the 1930s. And, you know, Mueller was a great propagandist. So he really set the tone for talking about how science would operate under communism. So this is really where our kind of modern idea of science as apolitical, as completely objective, or at least that those are the ideals of science. This is kind of where this idea really gained steam uh, is in the Cold War era, or had this sort of already been an ideology and it just kind of surfaced more prominently during this time? Well, the ideology had existed for a while, particularly this idea of uh, scientific internationalism. But what's so fascinating about this time period is watching foreign policy leaders operationalize the idea. So whether it's this notion of using scientific internationalism to promote um, scientific intelligence gathering, or in a slightly later period after Sputnik, seeing these ideas about um, kind of science as being apolitical as itself um, something that you could argue for in the court of world opinion. Um, you know, a good example of this is in the late 1950s, uh, several communist bloc countries also started realizing what was at stake in this dynamic. Um, and so uh, the People's Republic of China, East Germany, and North Korea really started clamoring for a seat at the table at uh, international scientific gatherings. Um, and the United States had a problem. Uh, because officially, uh, U.S. foreign policy did not recognize, for instance, the People's Republic of China. And so officially, if you were uh, a U.S. government representative, you could not be present at an event that also seated representatives from the People's Republic of China. And so China was really uh, backing the United States into an ideological corner here because the United States was claiming over and over and over again, we don't politicize science. This is what makes us different than the Soviet Union. We don't have party lines in science. We don't, you know, interfere. We're, we're not nationalists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the United States found itself in a position where it, where it genuinely considered withdrawing from certain um, international scientific organizations because there would be representatives uh, from unrecognized regimes there. Um, and the United States had to figure out how to solve this problem. So there was a, a great debate about whether science would be exceptional from the rest of foreign policy. Uh, there were some scientists, particularly at the National Academies of Science, who argued that um, the United States should just go anyway, uh, because science was a, a separate realm of foreign policy. And there were other people, particularly the State Department, 
Wallace Brody, who I mentioned earlier, uh, returned to uh, uh, a different kind of, of foreign service when he became the science advisor to the State Department in 1958. And so Wallace Brody, who had spent a decade in federal science, said, this is ridiculous. You can't separate science from other parts of foreign policy. Science isn't different than agriculture or economics or anything else. If you don't recognize China in those realms, you can't recognize China in science. Um, and so the United States tried to square that circle by sending scientists as individuals or as individuals who had been um, officially recognized by the National Academies of Science, which is technically not a government organization. So basically it was establishing extraordinarily elaborate measures to create arm's length relationships where the government could send, could still send people to international meetings, but yet plausibly claim that they weren't technically there as government representatives, so they could still be present at a meeting with representatives from unrecognized regimes without then having to say, we're not going to seat these people because they're communists. Right. So the idea was, hey, we didn't send them, but we didn't stop them from doing a thing they wanted to do as their own person. Well, and in fact, we will pay for them to go. But right. we, will give the money, we will give the money to a secondary organization, and then that secondary organization can pay for them to go because they're nominally a private organization. Right. And so you can, you can even do that as a government employee um, if, you are, if you are going in your capacity as a scientist as opposed to in your capacity as a government employee. Right. So the government argument at the time was, hey, we just gave this private organization who does good things a lump sum. What they do with it is not within our control. Exactly. And if this employee who works for the National Science Foundation needs to take two personal days to go to this meeting, and his salary happens to be matched by this other private organization that's that with money that we gave them, that's totally okay, too. This idea at this time of the ideology of science being apolitical, being explicitly politicized, and the people involved not really often seeing a contradiction there, I find really fascinating. Um, in particular, the scientists who very loudly um, tried to encourage other scientists, both local, uh, domestically and internationally, to kind of speak about this and talk about this. There were, I was fascinated to read about some of the conventions where they became mostly about the idea of science and freedom rather than about any particular scientific advancement that had taken place. Right. Um, this book focuses a lot on those kinds of um, activities where the focus really is on freedom. I mean, this is in some ways an artifact of what I chose to write about. There were certainly many other um, international meetings where they were focused on on specific topics with oh, this for came sure. up as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really where the idea of objectivity comes into it, that these same scientists, these same American scientists, um, part of what was at stake for them in the idea of objectivity, that it was possible for scientists to be objective, um, for them, part of that was being okay with getting so much of their funding from the military um, for other work that they were doing, that they had really convinced themselves that it didn't matter who was supporting your work or why they were supporting your work, uh, because you as an objective scientist could somehow transcend all these more uh, practical, mundane, day-to-day -day concerns. Um, 
But, you know, obviously, that's also a way of alighting discussions of power and um, not really addressing issues of the status quo. Uh, so these scientists who really uh, bought into this idea that, that scientists, more than any other profession, could be uniquely um, uniquely objective, that they could uniquely transcend those concerns, um, that, you know, the fact that they believe that was part of how they ended up in positions where they were sometimes working with the CIA and not necessarily asking a lot of questions about it. Because they thought, well, the funding doesn't matter as long as they don't actively involve, you know, as long as they don't get actively involved in our day-to-day operation. Um, and obviously, there are uh, problems with that line of thinking. But that's, that's part of how so many scientists were able to do this and to sleep at night while simultane- simultaneously going around telling people uh, that, you know, in the United States, the government has nothing to do with science. So how much of this contradiction did scientists of that day realize? I mean, were they aware of their role in the kind of propaganda machine of the US during this time? Um, or were they kind of just what they felt like acting on their own individual motivation uh, and beliefs about how things should be? I, I'm curious as to generally how scientists who were quite vocal at this time kind of saw themselves in this broader machine or whether they saw themselves as genuinely apart from it. Right. I mean, as a historian, I'm generally reluctant to speculate on the motives of of people who are no longer with us. But that being said, um, it is pretty clear that most of the scientists I talk about in this book are people whose careers thrived in this post-war period. They had um, gained authority, they had gained a power within, uh, within this Cold War system. And they were absolutely people who believed in the idea of change within the system. Um, and that made it challenging for them to see some of the limitations of their ways of thinking. These are people who were really convinced that they could do that and that they could uh, make certain kinds of criticisms and that they would be heard. Um, and they found it, you know, chal- when, when people began to criticize that point of view, particularly in the Vietnam period, when uh, critics of the new left really said, hey, you know, y- you can't do this. You can't take government money and simultaneously criticize the government with any kind of credibility. Um, they found it really hard to hear those kinds of criticisms because they said they thought, well, who better to criticize? the government than people who the government trusts. Um, you know, obviously, there is something to be said at times for some kinds of change within the system. Um, but at the level that these scientists were intertwined, it, it, it's hard to see how they thought they could really do that effectively. I mean, at heart, this is a both and story where I'm positive that many of these scientists genuinely thought that they were advancing the cause of science and that they were building international relationships and that what they were doing would genuinely help um, kind of the scientific enterprise. Um, but they weren't necessarily people who were inclined to ask a lot of questions about the structure of power. They weren't inclined to ask a lot of questions about who wasn't in the room with them. They weren't inclined to ask uh, what these educators in Taiwan might want on their own if it hadn't been for the American people asking them what they wanted. Um, they just, you know, they were mostly okay with the status quo because the status quo was working for them. 
This was an interesting time period for government as well, because the ideology really kind of centered and desired this idea of a scientist being able to question the government's authority or the government's direction. And people did do that. Your book opens uh, with your sort of thoughts and pursuit of trying to understand, um, I think it was glass. And at the same time, I'm assuming there was a line somewhere, fuzzy or not, where the government was like, okay, too much. You can question us, but now it's becoming actually more problematic than helpful. And I'm assuming that there are cases where scientists did go too far in that and that they were kind of slapped down or um, taken off of commissions, that kind of thing. Yes. And I wish that there were more stories about those kinds of people um, in the book. Uh, I allude to one uh, in the beginning, actually, there's uh, where I talk a little bit about some of the scientists who did have security problems. There was a, a woman named Melba Phillips, who was an Oppenheimer student who uh, had terrible problems with McCarthyism. And she you know, had a much more straightforward relationship with the left than many of the scientists talk that I talk about in my book. Uh, an example that I do talk about um, that I think is fairly telling is about Linus Pauling and his relationship to the broader disarmament movement. Uh, Linus Pauling was part of a group of American scientists and actually international scientists who um, were involved in a disarmament movement called Pugwash, uh, which... Uh, it goes by other names. It's called Pugwash, actually, because of a name of, an, uh, of a town in Nova Scotia, uh, where uh, their initial benefactor was from. And, and so that's they had their first meeting there, and it was called Pugwash thereafter. But Pugwash really started out as a nuclear abolition group. Um, and so this was international. It was going to have Soviet scientists, American scientists, uh, British scientists, Canadian scientists. And they were really going to work for a world without nuclear weapons. Once Pugwash got started, though, uh, some of the American leaders really wanted a closer relationship with the United States government because, you know, they, they weren't wrong in thinking that if governments are ever going to sign agreements to get rid of their nuclear weapons, they're going to need to be on board for this. So some of these American scientists were trying to do change within the system and they were trying to get to build these partnerships. Um, but Pauline didn't like that idea. And Pauline said, no, 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 we should be doing this from outside the system. And over time, the Americans who wanted to work with the government increasingly walked away from the idea of nuclear abolition. These were people who were saying, well, maybe a test ban would be sufficient. A test ban would at least, um, an atmospheric test ban would at least solve this problem of fallout, which is, you know, one of the things they were really worried about. And Pauling said, eh, you know, really, this is not the goal that we're looking for. And Pauling continued to work for that ideal and eventually had um, a fairly severe falling out with the other Pugwash folks who wanted to, who were okay with this more limited um, solution to nuclear weapons. Whereas Pauling was more than willing to uh, work with outsiders, uh, you know, particularly other scientists, but in some cases, even, even lay people to say, you know, there's a moral argument here um, to get rid of, of nuclear weapons, whereas the other American scientists in Pugwash were really trying to make that argument from technical means. Um, here are technical reasons why we can uh, reduce our reliance on nuclear weapons, or here are technical means uh, by which we can uh, verify a test ban. Those ended up being uh, fairly different goals, and Pauling 
uh, was increasingly excluded uh, from the uh, from Pugwash's arguments, and he got cut out of uh, when Pugwash was working with the government. The government didn't want to have anything to do with Pauling. So he was effectively on the other side of this line, this kind of invisible, vague line of when it goes too far. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I mean, that being said, Pauling, while he was willing to work with some people who were um, outsiders, he did still prioritize scientific knowledge. Um, and so even looking at Pauling's role in this, you know, the, the anti-nuclear movement was a global movement that involved uh, many people who had no scientific training whatsoever. Um, and even Pauling found it difficult to figure out how to relate to those folks, uh, to acknowledge that every individual on earth was affected by fallout and had some standing in arguing uh, for the end of nuclear testing and the end of nuclear weapons. Uh, so even Pauling was still committed to certain ideas about expertise, uh, but he was willing to combine those ideas about expertise with morality um, in a way that a lot of his other scientific colleagues weren't, weren't even willing to go there. They simply wanted to make technical arguments based on scientific facts. So I also want to talk about science education, because this was definitely a part of your book and a part of this story that I had never really heard about before. Um, so maybe start by talking about kind of how science education changed during the Cold War, um, because it, it did undergo school in general underwent a, a fairly significant change over the Cold War period period in the US. Yeah, so we began this conversation talking about Arnold Grobman and the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, the uh, which I'll call BSCS. Uh, the BSCS was one of a series of science curriculum reforms that happened after Sputnik. Uh, when the Soviets launched their satellite in 1957, um, some leaders in the United States, particularly in Congress, when they were trying to understand how did the Soviet Union get ahead of the United States in the space race, um, they settled on the problem of education. And they convinced themselves that science in the United, uh, science education in the United States was greatly lagging behind uh, that in the Soviet Union. And what was really needed to beat the Soviets in the space race um, was a re-envisioning of science education at the uh, high school level. So there were a whole series of curriculum reforms in physics, in earth sciences, in chemistry, in mathematics, um, and in biology. Some of these projects were already underway before Sputnik, um, but they received um, an incredible infusion of cash uh, with the passage of the National Defense Education Act in 1958. And so um, most of these programs were driven by university educators, not by, uh, by university scientists, not by education professionals. And almost all of these programs, like the BSCS, really emphasize this inquiry-based approach. Um, part of why they, I mean, partially this was ideological, that it was uh, kind of the opposite of received, you know, the opposite of received knowledge. Uh, inquiry is the opposite of Lysenkoism. Um, but it was also the idea that um, science was in some kind of crisis. Um, I would say across the globe, there was the idea in the 1950s that knowledge was changing so fast that no one could possibly keep up with it. So textbooks were becoming outdated too quickly. Um, and one of the ways that American scientists responded to that was to say, you know what, we're not going to teach the content of science it's much more important to teach students to think like scientists. And the way that you do that is to emphasize inquiry. So uh, many of these groups, but particularly the BSCS, produced textbooks and even teacher's guides that sometimes didn't have answers to questions. Um, they would put together courses where students were supposed to raise questions and do experiments. Um, this was one of the first great curriculum reforms that emphasized laboratory training. 
And some of that money from the from the uh, NDEA, that, that Education Act, um, actually went to building laboratories in American high schools. So this really uh, transformed the way that education, uh, that high school science education was taught uh, in the United States. Uh, but also it transformed that around the world because these other government agencies thought that these books, these new textbooks, uh, would be a phenomenal way to spread American values. Um, and that gets us back to the story about Arnold Grobman and the earthworms and what he was doing in Hong Kong. Um, I love the story of the BSCS's work abroad because it shows us how um, overt government groups, covert government groups, and private agencies were all funding the same kinds of work, that it can be a bit of a distraction to focus too much on whether something was uh, kind of overt or covert, whether uh, something was being funded by the Rockefeller Foundation or by USAID or by uh, one of the CIA's cover groups, um, that when it came to textbook translation, they were all doing exactly the same activities abroad. Um, it's a fascinating attempt to spread American values by changing the ways that students are being taught about science. There definitely was this time at the end of the Cold War, uh, you spoke previously, in particular during the Vietnam War, um, where there began to be a more noisy critique of the idea of scientific freedom and objectivity and scientific culture as the US was kind of selling it. Um, what kinds of critiques did the this sort of new left put forth uh, against what had gone before it? Well, the new left really started with the idea that you can't separate uh, funding from um, the actions that it wasn't really possible to uh, do credible kind of oppositional helping people science if you were getting money from the military industrial complex. Um, that was still sort of a limited critique, though, that said that you could do, you know, work for the government or that you could do um, state work if you were doing um, uh, kind of programs that helped or, or programs that actually sponsored the public good. In the later part of the 1960s, there was a more cr radical critique, particularly developed by um, a group that I'm assuming is the namesake for this program, Science for the People. Um, and Science for the People really launched the idea that we needed an entirely new kind of science that was working on behalf of the people. Um, it was not statist at all. Um, and it was really saying, you know, this was about community support, uh, community outreach, uh, building relationships and and uh, kind of uh, 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 mutual assistance ideas. Um, this was a very different idea about, uh, it, this, often this was explicitly anti-racist. Um, later they did some work that was anti-sexist as well. They were in some ways less good about gender than they were about race. Um, but they were really trying to think through like how can scientists as a whole work on behalf of justice for everyone as opposed to just for scientists. Um, it was a, a really interesting moment where these conversations were uh, open and vibrant. And I think one of the most interesting things about the past couple of years when it comes to um, the politics of science is watching so many scientists rediscover these critiques. Um, and in fact, the organization Science for the People has um, kind of reconstituted itself and it'll be launching its own, uh, it'll be relaunching its magazine again this coming spring. So um, I think many scientists today who want to be parts of uh, fights for justice for everyone are um, recovering some of that language and finding that it speaks to them and offers some some interesting avenues to explore. There, I think, is, if not a growing comfort with, and at least a growing ability to discuss uh, in the last sort of five to eight years that science is inherently political. In particular, I think in the United States, given how politicized science has become in the US, it's, it's impossible to think of science as a 
as a non-political, apolitical entity when it is being actively politicized sort of far and wide. Um, is this to some extent a legacy of what has come before it in the Cold War? It was this kind of inevitable that we would get to this place over time? Um, or is this just kind of its own thing that's separate from that baggage? Well, I think particularly the past two years, one of the things that's happened with the Trump administration is that um, it is no longer possible to pretend that there is such a thing as a um, kind of apolitical science within the federal government. Of course, this was never the case anyway, but it was possible for scientists under prior U.S. administrations um, to act as if these kinds of power relationships weren't there, even if you were working for the Department of Agriculture or even if you were working for the Environmental Protection Agency. And what we see under the current administration is that you just can't pretend that anymore. Um, and so sort of the scales have fallen for many people's eyes. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it's harder to ignore. And scientists are understanding that, wow, um, these um, these concerns are affecting everyone. And it doesn't necessarily help people when we fall back on the language of objectivity, which isn't to say that facts aren't real. It's not to say that facts aren't desirable. Facts are great. Uh, but of course, you know, these are humans asking questions about facts. And um, these are, you know, what kind of questions get asked, what kinds of uh, people get to be at the table to talk about what kinds of facts matter. Um, all of this stuff, stuff matters tremendously. And I do see many more scientists willing to have these conversations. It's actually a really exciting moment to see scientists um, willing to think about what does this mean to marshal our expertise um, in a way that is liberatory, as opposed to simply as a way to advance the interest of the science of scientific institutions. Do you think the idea of science being objective is still valuable to us? I think the language of objectivity itself is less helpful than the language of empiricism. Um, I think sometimes when scientists use the language of objectivity, what they really mean is uh, a, a belief in the existence of facts, uh, a problem-solving approach to the world, uh, the idea that you can conduct investigations and find uh, things out of them. Uh, some of these, th this is sort of some of the best that can come out of science, um, but that's not necessarily the same thing as objective. And as uh, more and more people are thinking critically about the relationship between power and knowledge, uh, which, of course, uh, people in science studies and across the humanities have been doing for quite some time, you know, as more and more people are thinking about this, um, it becomes harder and harder to say, you know, these people can be transcendently objective and this other group of people can't. Um, and I think the more that we think carefully about who gets to make those claims and who doesn't, um, the more problematic we see that those claims are. Um, so, you know, empiricism is, is terrific. It's always great to, uh, to investigate claims about the natural world. Um, uh, but with a strong awareness of what opportunities you've had to be able to make those investigations in the first place, um, and a strong awareness of what people can do with that data, where that data goes, uh, how that data is constituted, all of those kinds of questions are, are super important. We talked earlier about 
about a definition of the term freedom and how that was a kind of nebulous thing during the Cold War. It occurs to me that in the modern day, the word freedom not only is still kind of a nebulous word, but that the overall idea of what that word might mean has potentially shifted from that time. Do you think the idea of scientific freedom is different now than it would have been represented as in the Cold War? I do. I think scientific freedom now, as um, many people use the term, is much more limited to basically autonomy in their research, um, that they should um, not necessarily, um, that, that their answers won't be shaped uh, by their funders. And that is certainly part of what the Cold War people meant when they said scientific freedom. Uh, but they also had kind of a much broader sense of ideas about what it would mean to be a public intellectual in the world. Um, and some of those ideas are absolutely lovely ideas. And if they were available to everyone, that would be great. Um, there are some ways, though, in which the language of scientific freedom can be read as simply protecting scientific autonomy. Um, so a good example is when, you know, every few years when uh, Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives have been in charge, um, there are campaigns to say that scientists, that American scientists need to um, explain how the work that's conducted by the National Science Foundation um, advances national interest. And every time this happens, what inevitably happens is that scientists speak up and they say, this is completely inappropriate. The science shouldn't be driven by national interest. Now, I think what they mean to be saying, um, what I choose to hear them as saying, um, is that uh, their findings shouldn't be shaped by a partisan uh, interference. And that is absolutely the case. Um, it is, though, an open question as to whether or not it's appropriate to have some kind of um, public discussion about what government monies should be funding in science, uh, particularly uh, when those same uh, leaders are using language of austerity, that, um, you know, th there is a limited number, there isn't a limited amount of money in the pool um, under current budgetary constraints uh, that can do everything from, say, funding health care to uh, feeding people to housing people uh, to conducting uh, to, you know, d defense operations to funding science. And, you know, absolutely, I think that, that where the emphasis is being placed is misguided in that science that you could fund a lot more science with sort of a drop in the bucket from, say, military funding. At the same time, um, you know, the United States is a democracy and the people do actually have some say about what the national priorities are and to act as if it's completely inappropriate to have to even have a discussion about what science should do um, strikes me as perhaps a little off key because scientists are not necessarily the ones who should be making policy decisions. They should be informing policy decisions. But if scientists are making the policy decisions, um, that's a technocracy. Unless, of course, they've been elected to office, which is great. <laughs> scientists want to run for office, that's fantastic. Um, but, you know, in, unless they are in that position, um, you know, they, they, they need to, to recognize uh, the different roles that these different groups have in a democracy. Is there a place in the world for state or government directed science, not necessarily as a total ideology where all science is directed by the state? But is there a, a place for science that is more in keeping with what the USSR envisioned at the time for science that was so contrary to US ideology at the time? 
Well, you know, the United States does actually have um, mission-driven scientific institutions, right? We have NASA, we have NOAA, we have the EPA, uh, we have the people who do climate work at the Department of Energy. Um, what's interesting is that so many uh, American, even American science policymakers, don't want to somehow acknowledge that, right? Um, but we that we do have these organizations. Uh, you see some of the ideological pools, uh, for instance, with with the creation of NASA, that NASA uh, at its origins in the late 1950s was really set up to be decentralized, uh, to do so much of its work through contracts as opposed to um, through a centralized administration, in part to demonstrate to the rest of the world that in the United States, you could do uh, space research, you could do uh, human spaceflight, uh, without a centralized structure. Uh, one can debate uh, the merits of that, whether or not uh, the virtues of having competing systems uh, actually weighs out some of the inefficiencies and profit motives that you have when inevitably you're basically building up a defense contractor industry. Uh, so there are pros and cons to that, and the United States has dabbled in it more than it generally wants to acknowledge. Everything is always more complicated than we think it is at first blush. <laughs> Indeed, this is a very complicated story. And it, it was a fascinating one to read. Audra, it's been great chatting with you and the book is excellent. I highly recommend anybody interested in this era in particular, um, but also in the kind of idea we have of what science is, because it definitely made me reflect on my own thoughts about what science is, what it should or should not be, what it can be, what it might have been as part of reading this book. I, I definitely recommend people check it out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a great conversation. And if you want to learn more about Audra Wolf or her book, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science, we will have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which as per usual, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 